Hello, I'm Matthias Spiegel. And I'm Ronald Donaldson. And welcome to the That's a Different Story, where we bring you the true tales of people so magical they could be attached to the hindquarters of a mythical beast. Today's show is about a woman who's just trying to catch a break, or should I say, beak, in the streets of New York City. So with no further interruption, here's Ron with different story number one, Bird's the Word. This is Ronald Donaldson, reporter for But That's a Different Story. Today, I'll take you inside the exciting world of urban birding. It was a Wednesday morning when I exited the 7 train at Flushing, Queens. I was there to visit taxidermatologist, a combination taxi depot, skin care center, and taxidermy warehouse. Tucked away inside an abandoned SkyChef terminal for LaGuardia Airport, the bustling megastore is the pet shop for bargain hunters. You see, once in a while, some of the animals getting stuffed with sawdust spring back to life, and these sleeping beauties of the beast world are then sold for rock-bottom prices. I was there that day to purchase a parrot. I had heard that some parrots can live to be close to 100 years old. Because I was planning on dying alone well before I reached 100, I wanted to make sure someone would peck the eyes out of my corpse before the EMTs could swipe them for the black market. A parrot seemed like a good choice. As I was perusing the reanimated and half-dead birds, I met Susan Elgin. Susan, a squat, solid woman of about 45, had a brown Prince Valiant haircut and wore a faded forest green jumpsuit. She explained to me that she knew all about our avian amigos, from albatrosses to zoos. Birds in zoos, that is. If you wanted the wingspan, the weight, or the warble of a particular flying fauna, she knew it. Susan pulled me aside and told me she knew where to get the best bird in the city. And not just any bird, but a rare, endangered, fine-feathered friend. I decided to follow her to see what I could find. Uh, so, tell me, how, how do you know so much about birds? Yeah, lots of bird watching. <laughs> Mostly that. When did you first start to become interested in these birds? Just, uh, it's kind of like a passion of mine, I guess you could say. A, a hobby, a hobby. Okay, uh, so would you cons- have you gone to school for to study about birds? Are you a classically trained ornithologist? I've seen a lot of PBS. They have, you know, The Life of Birds, David Attenborough. Oh, it's so good. Oh, his voice is so soothing. It's like, ah, it puts me to sleep right away. So I actually haven't seen a full episode all the way through. But, you you know, I think you get it uh, in in your dreams uh, subconsciously. So, uh, you've lived in... Uh, where where did you grow up? Did you grow up out in nature to see a lot of a lot of these fine feathered friends? I grew up in the basement down in Brooklyn. Uh, you know Red Hook. Uh, there was so many birds down there. There was a lot of rats, and sometimes I would see some hawks come down, catch the rats, and then go eat them. I was like, I like that. I like that. They kind of helped me, save me from the rats that were always nibbling at my toes when I was sleeping. Because the birds, I didn't have a window in the basement, but the birds would sneak in through the little, like, uh, a thing. Where, you know, backyard comes in, and sneak in, pick up the rats, take them out the window, fly away. No more rats for me, nibble on my toes. Pretty sweet deal. 
So you grew up in New York City, not the best place for bird watching, I would imagine. Is there a big bird watching community in New York City? Actually, you'd be surprised. There's quite a large bird watching community out here. Uh, there's Joe down the street. I see him shooing the pigeons off his stoop all the time. It seems like pigeons are a very, they're a New York institution, and you see them a lot. Woody Allen once remarked, pigeons are just rats with wings. Do you agree with that? Uh, I've seen a pigeon eat a rat, so I don't think so unless there's some kind of cannibal. Do you get along with the other bird watchers in the bird watching community? Oh, yeah. We like to swipe them off everywhere. Uh, you know, shoo this pigeon, shoo that pigeon. You know, I go look up out of a window sometimes. I go up to a building about six, seven stories high, and I look out, and then I see a bird come crashing right into the window. And me and the other guys, we all laugh because it's so funny watching the bird get injured and all. It is instead of watching the bird, the bird comes to you. I guess that makes bird watching a little easier. Oh, very, very much so, yeah. Great. I mean, do you want to keep... Those were all the questions I had. I followed Susan to Central Park. Surely, I thought, this is where we'll find some of those beaked beauties. I knew a thing or two about the modern-day dinos, and I knew they liked the outdoors and trees. If any place in New York City had those two things, it was Central Park. As we passed by scantily clad rollerbladers and scantily clad homeless bums, Susan stopped. She pointed up. I strained to see what she was pointing at. There was nothing in the sky, save for countless police drones. Just a few more minutes, Mac. My name's not Mac. You see up there? Where? Right up there. That's where we'll find her. The one you're looking for. She was pointing at the El Dorado, a pre-war luxury apartment building at West 90th Street and Central Park West. The building has two identical towers sprouting from its base, each culminating in terrace spires of Art Deco brilliance. It was there we would find the bird. But first, we had to find our way to the top. We went to the doorman and, shall we say, greased his palm. The Crisco Susan put on the doorman's hands made them too slippery to pick up a phone to call the cops, and we waltzed our way up to a service elevator, which led out at the 19th floor. There was a large window, and in it was the face of a small Latino man. He was standing on a window washer's platform. Susan opened the window and introduced me to Bernardo Estuvera. Born in Ecuador, Bernardo came from a long line of window washers. In his home country, his father washed the windows to the town's tallest building, a one-story subway franchise. Susan and Eduardo exchanged a few heated words in Spanish. Finally, she reached into her knapsack and took out some Polaroids of Susan posing seductively while wearing a spacesuit. Eduardo had a specific fetish. The transaction made, Eduardo supplied Susan with the equipment we would need to reach the top of the building's towers. We left the levitating Latin Lothario, and after a long and laborious climb, we reached the top of the southern tower. I asked if the bird was near. Susan pulled out her binoculars. Here, take a look. W where am I looking? Yeah, the tower. See that? Wait, the, the bird's not even here? Just take a look, will you? 
Am I looking for the nest? No! Look at the penthouse! See that couple getting that freak on? I did. It was freaky. Oh, yeah, baby! Do it! Do it! After an hour of spying on the copulating couple, we made our way down the tower and started climbing the other tower. Several hours and a waning sense of interest later, we reached the top of the northern tower. Quietly, we peeked over a ledge. Susan pointed. There it was! The awesome avian was a rare subspecies of peregrine falcon, a perrier falcon. The bird was brought over from France with its cousin, the less fearsome and less expensive avian falcon. The perriers were originally attack birds, raptors used in duels. During the French Revolution, the falcons were unleashed and sent to swipe the bicorner Napoleon-style hat of the opponent, and a man losing his hat to a bird was one of the greatest insults in French society. Now, they mostly terrorize cyclists and steal pamphlets from poor souls standing out in the street. Surely this bird would make a fine companion. Susan reached into her knapsack. Over her hand was a crude sock puppet resembling a male Perrier falcon. You could tell it was male from the bulging codpiece. Susan used the puppet to subdue and seduce the mama bird. Hello there! Aren't you a pretty little lady falcon? Alright, let's get the loot and scram. Susan snapped the falcon's neck. I was horrified. What did you do? Duh, I took care of her. You killed her. I had to. Can't get the eggs with the mama bird around. The, the eggs? Yeah. Yeah? What do you mean, the eggs? Uh, uh, we're tanking them. What do you think we're doing up here anyway? Clearly, Susan was not going to help me get a new pet. And clearly, she had something in store for those eggs. I needed to find out more. So, uh, we're, um, <laughs> we're not doing my thing? What thing? Susan crammed the mama bird's carcass into her knapsack to be hosed and posed at the taxidermatologist later. She carefully placed the dead falcon's eggs into a miniature Easter basket, which we all know is the most secure way to transfer eggs. The eggs themselves were amazing, perfectly oblong and smooth. They were powder blue and speckled with 24-karat gold flakes. Each egg had the signature of a world-renowned artist like Picasso or Van Gogh scribbled on it, though I don't think it was the real thing. The eggs were all wearing uncreased baseball hats with the price tags still on, so you knew they were authentic. With our precious cargo, Susan and I rappelled down the side of El Dorado and hastily made our way to one of Susan's contacts. Her people on the inside were buyers of exotic animals, alive, dead, and sometimes unborn. This underworld of rare animal trafficking was a seedy and gritty place, with deals done behind closed doors and away from the intrusive sniffing of the binostral law. These nefarious Noahs traded rare species for vast sums of money. In fact, high society restaurants would pay top dollar for Susan's eggs. We tried a few of Susan's regulars. A steakhouse near Wall Street, an upscale waffle house tucked inside the Ritz, a bounce house at a child's birthday party in Tribeca. There were no takers. There was one place left, 
a three-star French restaurant in Manhattan's Tony Upper East Side. Considered by some to be possibly one of the best restaurants in the tri-state area, the prestigious restaurant has won numerous awards and only recently became non-segregated. That's how old school it is. Susan said she had made many deals here. She once sold them the eggs of former Knicks star Patrick Ewing's aptly named hockey-playing parrot, Hatrick Ewing. The eggs were turned into a frittata. We met the sous chef behind the restaurant in the back alley. Steam hissed from unseen vents as we kicked away trash and finally quaffed rats wearing their best evening wear. This was the Upper East Side, after all. A large steel door swung open and the sous chef emerged wearing his kitchen whites and comically large and floppy chef's hat while carrying a rolling pin. He was the real deal. He asked that we didn't share his real name, so we'll call him PP. We asked PP about the eggs. I captured the conversation with my recorder. Thanks again, Pepe. Please do not use my name. You say you have the goods? Uh, let me see them. Oh, sacre bleu! You are not kidding. These are majestic. Hey, hands off! I was just getting a feel. Yeah, then you never caught back. That was a long time ago. So, you ready to make a deal or what? I don't know. These, they are not worth much. 500, maybe? Okay, per egg. Per egg? Voulez-vous coucher avec moi? 400. You are joking, oui? 100 per egg. Stop yanking my chain, Frenchie. 250 and that's my final offer. That is outrageous. How dare you? You think we put up with this from the cheesemonger or the champagne seller or the Little Debbie frozen dessert distributor? The conversation turned into an argument. And much like the water in the kitchen's lobster pot, this was about to reach its boiling point. With one hand, Pee-Pee raised his rolling pin as if to strike. This distracted Susan from what Pee-Pee was holding in his other hand, a gun. He shot her three times. The eggs started to fall, and we all reached out for them. We missed, but ended up shaking each other's hands, which was nice. The eggs hit the ground with a blinding flash and a puff of blue smoke as the wails of the bird's souls drifted to the afterlife. The eggs were gone. Pee-Pee ran into the kitchen and slammed the door as Susan, holding her stomach, ran down the alleyway, leaving a trail of 45-year-old blood. I was left standing there, too stunned to follow. And it looked like someone had dropped a quarter. I had laundry to do. It was late, so I picked up the quarter, and I headed home for the evening. I never did find out what happened to Susan. She may have been the bleeding, slumped-over woman I stepped over as I made my way to the laundromat that night, or maybe she got patched up and is still out there, climbing the towers of luxury co-ops and strangling rare birds. As for me, I went back to the taxidermatologist and got myself a hamster who coughs up sawdust every now and then. But that's a different story.